You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, an author named Klein Snodgrass, quite the name, uh, said, Church is the place that people go to find their identity. And everyone, he said, goes to church somewhere. And he tells the story of an actor as he was being interviewed in this big, empty theater, and he looked around and he said, look, this is my church. Everyone is looking somewhere to find themselves. And the question that I want to pose to you this morning is, where are you looking? Where are you looking to find yourself? Now, some today will look deep within I think of Moana, that the spirit of her grandmother comes to her and asks an extremely important question, do you know who you are? And after singing about her family and her island and her lineage, she concludes, the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me, right? It's, it's in here, the call me, it's in here, some look within. Others travel far outside themselves, restless and always on the move. You know those people that are just going and going and going. It's one trip after another and one adventure and to the other side of the world and on and on and on, constantly looking, never quite finding. Some are willing to make significant and even at times irreversible changes to who they are, trying to somehow align with the person that they think that they should be. A number of people have scoured religious writings such as the Torah and the Quran and Buddhist writings and the teachings of Confucius and on and on and on. But you see, what we find here in Colossians is that according to verse 3, your real life is hidden. Your real life is hidden. And I think that we can all agree upon this, that identity is not apparent No matter which direction you're going to end up going, if you're looking within or you're looking far out there or wherever you look, I think we can all agree upon this, that our identity is concealed somewhere. It's elusive. It's hard to find. And the claim of the gospel, and I really think that the main point of the passage that we're looking at this morning, is that your true self isn't discovered. It can't be discovered. Instead, your, your real self, your identity, is revealed. It's, it's uncovered for you. It's not something you find. It's something that's revealed for you. And this life that we're, we're looking for only appears not when we are looking for ourselves. That's the mistake that we often make. We try to find ourselves by looking for ourselves. No, it appears when we actually, the word tells us, die to ourselves and in faith look to Jesus Christ. It's a life that only appears, in fact, on the other side of a resurrection with Jesus. Verse 1, if then, and this is the big if, if then you have been what? 
raised with Christ? That's the million dollar question. Have you been raised with Christ? This true self isn't just a better version of you. It's not just a more self-confident person that knows their purpose and lives courageously and does all the bold, scary things that you wish you could do. No, this real you, listen, is the raised you. Who's the real me? The raised me. The real you only comes once you have shared in Jesus's death and resurrection, dying to the old self so that you can be raised into someone new. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is, and I want to put a fine point on that, anyone can get in on this. If anyone is in Christ, he or he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. That is gone. Behold, look, pay attention. The new has come. Something new has come. So here's the wild claim. And if this doesn't shock you, it's because you're not paying attention. The wild claim is that for the believer, we are right now fully someone that we have yet to fully become. I'll say that again, because I think that'll hit when you're driving home about an hour or two later. For the believer, we are right now fully someone that we have yet to fully become. What? Raised with Christ, who's currently seated at the right hand of God above, and yet we are here on earth awaiting for Christ's return for him to make all things new. So your life for the believer is there with Jesus. You are there in a very real spiritual, eternal way with Jesus. And yet, as far as I can tell with my human eyes, you are right here right now. You occupy this space. In fact, Paul alludes to this earlier in chapter one, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In Christ at Colossae. You are simultaneously above in Christ and here you are right now at this very moment in an obscure little town called Stockton. Already, but not quite yet. And so the question for us this morning is how do we access and how do we live into our true selves that right now, that true self that is hidden with Christ in God, how do we make sure that we are living as our most authentic, raised selves and not as our old, dead, false selves, assuming that that is something that you want. Well, Paul begins with this. It's important that we experience heart alignment. Look at me again in verse one. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So that word, Seek, right there, can also be translated desire. This is heart stuff. Desire the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, what the biblical writers and I think the original audiences would have known and assumed is that you will always be moving towards what you desire most. It doesn't matter what you will to do or what you determine to do or what you plan to do. You will move in the direction of what you desire most. Seeking and desiring are always going to be one and the same. And so Paul is saying that in order for your 
you've got to order your heart around Christ where your true self is hidden so that right now your life becomes consistent with who you already are. Paul is saying, I want you to now be in alignment with what you already are in Christ. So start by bringing your heart and therefore your entire being into alignment with heavenly reality. What you see right now is not all there is. This is not the end all be all. There is ultimate reality. And for the Christian, that ultimate reality is forever hinged to heaven. 1914, uh, about two years after the sinking of the Titanic, there was another tragic uh, ship collision off the shores of Virginia in the Atlantic Ocean in the foggy cold night. And it involved a a steamboat named the Monroe, and it was struck by a large freight ship named the Nantucket, and 40 people ended up dying. And so both of the captains ended up surviving, convenient, isn't it? The captains survived, and as they were being cross-examined in what I assume was like maritime court or whatever, what they found was that the, the captain of the steamboat had been operating with a compass that deviated two degrees. Not... 90 degrees, not 180 degrees, it was two degrees. And in his opinion, this was a perfectly acceptable deviation. It's just two degrees, it's a couple of degrees. What harm is this going to bring? He found out the hard way uh, that actually could bring quite a bit of harm to himself and others. And the New York Times actually published an article regarding this incident. And the headline that now is like, what we have written in the history books about this event, the headline read this, Monroe steered by faulty compass. It wasn't an issue with the boat. It was not an issue with the crew. It wasn't an issue with the engine. It wasn't an issue with their their plans or where they planned to be or their will to get there. It was an issue of misalignment. And a compass only works when it is aligned to its true north, when it is completely centered. And what Paul is showing us here is that our hearts are the compasses of our lives. But they are compasses that are constantly coming out of alignment. I wear this watch once a week. It's right now, Sunday mornings, so that I'm not going over time. Every Sunday I come and it's like off a couple minutes. So I have to adjust it. Just a couple minutes every week but something I constantly have to adjust. Constantly, our hearts are being drawn towards other things, earthly things, sinful things, things that are inconsistent with who we now are in Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us our hearts will continually need to be you know, realigned. And so the question that we have to ask Every single day, and I mean this, every single day, and maybe even moment by moment is this, what am I seeking? What am I allowing to hold my affections right now? What is captivating my heart? What is drawing me toward it? Where is that slight deviation that, is exper- that I'm experiencing right now? It's going to be subtle. Um, the Proverbs tell us, Proverbs 4, it's maybe one of the most Uh, you know, infamous Proverbs. It says this, above all else, guard your what? Guard your heart. We know this one. For everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. What does that mean? We typically take this passage to mean that we need to protect our hearts from others. Like I've got this pure, delicate thing within me 
that is in constant threat from the outside world. Ooh, you're like putting off bad vibes right now. I need to guard my heart from you. Or like you, you right now are like draining me of my mental, emotional energy. I need to guard, I need some boundaries. I need to like guard my heart from you. When in reality, it actually means the opposite. It means to watch over your heart because it is wild and wandering. Your heart, whether you want to recognize it or not, is like a little toddler that you turn your back on it for just a moment and it's like, where did you go? Where did you go? I remember the story of our baby, Levi, when he was about two or three. Michelle turned her back on him for just a moment, turns back. There's a door slid to the, or a chair slid to the door. The latch is unlatched. Door's wide open. She runs out, looks down like 150 yards as he's just taking the corner. Where's he going? Who knows? He's just making a break for it. The Bible's like, your heart is like that toddler. You turn your back for a moment, gone in a million different directions. And so the only way to ensure that you are not drawn in a million different directions is by continually giving your heart to heavenly things. How do we do that? Through worship, through the word, through prayer. We are not reinventing Christianity here, guys. It's the good, old, faithful, tested ways of pursuing God, worshiping and engaging God's word and praying. Pointing your heart to where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I love how Sam Storms uh, sums up this command. He says this, this is a commanded obsession. Fixate fully Rivet your heart or rivet your soul on the grace that you will receive when Christ returns. Tolerate no distractions. Entertain no diversions. Do not let your mind be swayed. Devote every ounce of mental and spiritual and emotional energy to concentrating and contemplating on the grace that is to come. That's next level, isn't it? This is what Paul's saying. But I have to warn you right now, and I I want to give you this warning so that you can count the cost. Because that's an important part of pastoral ministry. You you should know what you're signing up for here. And what I have to warn you about is this, is if you take this command seriously, this is not a suggestion, by the way, this is an imperative. God is saying this is what the Christian must do. If you take this command seriously, it's going to be misunderstood by just about every single person in your life. Mark my word. And if it's not, you're probably hanging out with people that are too similar to you. (laughs) To your non-believing friends and family and coworkers, they are going to tolerate your Christianity so long as it never becomes an obsession. So long as it's relegated to a Sunday here and there, again, as long as it doesn't conflict with family birthdays and baby showers and family outings, and maybe some prayer in your own private life, and maybe, you know, like a little bit of private Bible devotion in the mornings once in a while. But the moment that your life is marked by this sort of seeking the things that are above, you are gonna be seen by almost everyone in your family and in your friendship circles and in your workplace as a fanatic and like you've lost your way. Have you joined a cult or something? What is going on? We're concerned about you. Consider this. Jesus Christ's own family, Mary, the mother of Christ, for goodness sakes, comes to Jesus in one of the peak moments of his ministry with his siblings, and they're like, 
we get what you're doing here, we appreciate it, but don't you think you've taken it a little bit far? Isn't this like a little bit much, Jesus? Come home, get some rest, get your wits about you because I think you've lost your way. You are obsessed and we're concerned about you. If they did that to Jesus, surely they ought to do that to us. Also be ready to be misunderstood by Christians as well, maybe even me. Because your obsession, your fixation, your tolerating Zero distractions in order to seek Christ is going to contrast the lives of those who want to live moderate Christian lives. It's going to look so sharply different that the assumption is going to automatically be that there's something wrong with you, not me. Because like, I am normal, you're the crazy one, you're the fanatic one, I'm the one that fits in with the status quo of evangelicalism, you're the one that's coloring outside the lines, you're the one that's pushing the boundaries, you're the one that's obsessed, what is wrong with you? Remember, the goal of life is not to fit in, not with the world, and not to fit in with the status quo of evangelicalism. The goal, and here it is, the vision that I hope that you take up for your life now and forever is this, to live consistently with who you are in Jesus. That's what it's about. That's what we pursue. Not the old, passing away, earthly you, the real, raised you. Paul secondly mentions here that we also need heavenly mindedness. You guys still with me? Okay, I know that got intense for a moment, but. Uh, Verse two, he also says, set your what? Minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So not only do we need to align our hearts around heaven, but we need to align align our minds around heaven as well because just like our hearts, our minds get distracted. Where's your head? I love when people ask that. That's a great question. Where's your head right now? Where's your head, Christian? At any given moment, what this tells us is that our minds are either set on things above or set on things of this earth. The only thing our minds can't do is be neutral. Where's your head? It can't be nowhere. <laughs> it's somewhere. So it's either thinking in ways that are consistent with the new risen you or it's thinking in ways that are consistent with the old false you. Where's your head? Now there's a belief that in order to be a person of faith that you can't be a very thoughtful, reasoning person. That you have to sort of choose to open up your heart and close your mind to become a believer. I hate that myth. That is a stupid myth. I remember uh, giving a speech as a student in a class at Delta, and I mentioned, because I can't help it, I mentioned that I believe in Jesus and that I'm a Christian. And, you know, finished my speech, I don't even remember what it was about, and I get down, and the guy right after me gets up in front of the class, and he's given his speech, and then all of a sudden, in a classroom full of people, he looks straight at me, and he says, I believe in reason and facts, And I was like, oh, big guy, we got the next Richard Dawkins here at Community College. We're all very impressed by you. I love that. That was like good banter. I was like, you got me, man. That's funny. Not really, but I can deal with that, you know? What irks me, what I cannot understand and what I cannot deal with 
is that when Christians fit the stereotypes, the stereotype, and when Christians adopt this way of thinking, I hear it all the time. I'm not much of a reader. I'm not really much of a student. Then become one. Then become one. The goal of faith is not to shut down our minds. The goal of faith is to renew them. Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You can't be a changed person apart from this process of renewing our minds. What's this mean? It means strengthening, it means growing, it means expanding, it means forming our minds because our minds are very similar to the muscles of our body. Your mind can be in shape or your mind can be out of shape. And I know this the hard way. I took a year off from furthering my education this last year and I don't know how to like put it in words. My mind got out of shape. You ever experienced it? My mind just kind of got lazy. It was easier to hit Netflix. Ask Michelle, she gives me a hard time. It was easier to hit Netflix than to open up a book. My mind was just like, I want the easy route right now. And so there's an in-shapeness or there's an out-of-shapeness with our minds. The Bible calls us to be in shape in our minds. It's vital. It's not an option. Klein Snodgrass, the, the individual I opened up with, he said this, your mind must be under constant revision, under construction at all time to be what God wants you to be. Why must there be a constant renewing of the mind? Here's why. Because you are changing each day and your circumstances are changing and the world is changing and I love this. And your mind was deficient anyways. It wasn't all right either way. We need a, a continual God-directed renewal process in our heads. And he goes on to say this, but God will not hit you on the head and make it happen. So stop just thinking like, oh, one day I'm gonna wake up and have the desire to grow and learn and, and know more about God. No, he's not gonna hit you upside the head. God seeks to engage you to participate with him. He is inviting you into this. So you will have to give attention to construction of your mind in relation to God. You're gonna have to take this serious. You're gonna have to take growing in your understanding and knowledge and wisdom of Christ so serious because no one else is gonna take that serious for you. No one else is going to take that serious for you. And so what Paul is talking about here is that we've got to form heavenly thought processes and keep them up. This word, set your minds, is not a one-time thing. It's not like, I set my mind on Christ when I was 14 at youth camp in Hume Lake, and I am set. No, it actually means a continual process, a daily process. Keep thinking on things above. Why? Because setting our minds above is actually doing something to us in the now. It is changing us right now. It is forming new habits of the mind. Or to, to use contemporary language, as we set our minds on the things above, we are carving new neural pathways. It, it, it's a way that breaks us free from the old ways of thinking that are selfish, that are fearful, that are anxious. So let me give an, an example of this. In the book of Philippians, it's a famous passage that I think that we sadly overlook often now. In Philippians 4, we're told this, do not be anxious about anything. I love all the ways that we try to figure out what that doesn't mean when he says anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul doing here? He acknowledges a struggle for every single one of us, and that struggle is anxious ways of thinking. We all at times have anxious ways of viewing the world. And when we give in to the anxiety, what we end up doing is we make it easier next time to respond anxiously. It's a vicious cycle, and we reinforce anxiety over and over and over again. So Paul says prayer and thanksgiving are very important ways to combat this pattern. But then, Paul immediately after this essentially says, let me show you how to form new habits so that you not only get rid of the old habits, but you replace them with better habits that make the old habits obsolete. He says in the very next verse, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. Form new ways of processing. Form new ways of imagining and dreaming and envisioning life by focusing your mind on things above. Anchor your thinking to heavenly reality. Now, what does this not mean? I don't think that this means that we then need to ignore the life around us like we turn a blind eye to anything and everything that is on earth. We are like totally aloof, our head is in the clouds, no. What this means is that we envision life, we envision our problems, we envision our dilemmas and our fears and our dreams and our question and our learning and our information and our news, Lord help us, in light of Christ, who is Lord over all. We process it all with Christ right at the center. In light of the Jesus who came into this world full of grace and full of truth, who lived the model life, who died in our place at the cross to forgive us and to release us from sin, who on the third day rose powerfully to overthrowing death and the devil, who ascended in authority and is right now seated in heaven, ruling and reigning until he returns to make everything new. Let your perspective come from that heavenly vantage point. Let those truths permeate the way that you process and think. Let me say it this way. Think the way that the you who's hidden with Christ would think. Let me say it differently. See your life right now the way that you in heaven would see it. In other words, think Christianly. Remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. Considering who Jesus has made you. Studying what Jesus has promised. Learning about what Jesus has taught. Imagining a future in light of what Jesus is doing. Fill your minds with the reality of the risen Christ. Amen? Let's look finally at one last point here, and that's hidden glory. Verses three and four. For you have died. That's a true statement about any Christian. You've died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, uh, being hidden in Christ 
can have a number of meanings. It, it carries this idea of that we are safe and secure within Christ. In fact, there's a psalm that alludes to this, Psalm 32. You are my hiding place, a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. I am safe when I'm hidden in the cleft of the rock, when I'm hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can touch me. But it also means that our life that is in Christ remains inconspicuous. It's that kind of hidden as well. We are hidden, think about this, in the Jesus who himself was not even recognized by his own people. John 1 says that he came into this world and people are like, who? What? That's the Christ that we are hidden in. This Jesus who was misunderstood, this Jesus who was rejected, this Jesus who lived in obscurity, and guess what? This Jesus who was killed because he was so radically different. So our, our heavenly identity is real. But the glory of what will be is still veiled. We still look like normal people. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, we I don't know what else to say. We just look like people. The moral beauty, the character of Christ, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that should be apparent. That should be on full display. There should be something about our lives where people are like, I don't get you. I don't even necessarily like you, but there's something different about you. There's something going on here that I can't explain. But the full glory of the resurrection, all of its glory, all of its brilliance, that is yet to come. It's like, uh, as Paul would say, it's like treasures right now in a jar of clay. The Apostle John would say, beloved, we are God's children now. We don't need to wait for that. It's right now. And what we will be has yet to, to appear but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. So all of your wildest dreams and visions of what you would one day become, and we even say this as adults, like when I grow up, I want to become, well, I think you're already a grown up, but you know what I mean? Like one day I want to be this, that thing that you're striving for, that person that you're striving to be, the beauty or the intelligence or the creativity or the position or status or whatever it is that you are longing to one day be, it pales in comparison to the beauty and brilliance that awaits every single one of us in Christ, without exception. And this would have been an extremely hopeful promise to the Colossians church, because listen to how one commentator put it. The Colossians, insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate country town, sometimes I feel like we live in one of those, will be seen in a glory which, if we're now to appear, one might be tempted to worship. In other words, a glory that the world couldn't even handle right now. I've shared this story before, but I want to come back to it intentionally because I think it's shaping for our community. In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the main character is on this, like, guided tour through heaven. And his tour guide is showing him all of these strange elements of life as it will be. And then all of a sudden, this like bright procession breaks in and starts moving their way like this giant parade headed right at them. And there's dancers and there's people singing and there's people playing their instruments. And it's all centered on this woman who comes into view. And she's radiant. And she's beautiful. It's like nothing he'd ever seen before. And the main character, he turns to his guide and he says, is that, um, 
is that what's her name? And he's like, nope. He cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish his question. Nope. You don't even know who this person is. You've never even heard of her. Her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived in Golders Green. And he responds, he says, well, she seems pretty important. Oh, yes, for sure. She's one of the great ones. But remember that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. In other words, a nobody can become a somebody in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about hidden glory. A hidden glory that any one of us who is in Christ possesses right now. Despite your status, despite your recognition, despite any affirmation from any person in this world, a hidden glory that resides within every believer Dietrich Bonhoeffer said Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly valued. So here's my closing. You've got an option today. And it's a very real option that I hope that you take serious. Your option is that you can stake your life on what the world values but in the long run is infinitely worthless. Or you can stake your life on a future that is infinitely worthy, but that the world will overlook until the day that you die. Build your identity on earthly glory or build your identity on heavenly glory. One, I'll, I'll let you know, it's, it's, one is thrilling, one is loud, one is vibrant right now, one is gonna draw a crowd, one is gonna feel very exciting and like you are alive like you've never been before. And the other is hidden. And it's not going to get much attention, and it may even be scorned, and they may even kill you for it. But the glory that comes in this life, as bright as it may be, we know this from Ecclesiastes, it is temporary at best. The glory that comes in this life will not last, and it can't last. And it will grow eerily dim as your body breaks down, and as your beauty fades and your strength decreases and your mind starts to slip and your creativity comes to a halt and all of your accomplishments are forgotten and they turn and find someone younger and smarter and prettier and more talented to praise. And the only thing that you will have to cling to in your old age and in death will be nostalgia. The stories of the glory days. And those stories that will cause your loved ones to like sympathetically pity you, but roll their eyes as you tell that same sad story again and again and again. And they look at that sad shell of a man or a woman who peaked long ago. This is a lesson I'm trying to tell my kids. You don't want to peak in high school. Trust me. Trust me. But the glory that is now hidden, we're told, will burn bright in eternity. In fact, it is a brilliance that grows stronger and brighter and more beautiful with every passing day. Always, listen to me, always building, never peaking. Always shining, never fading. 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, those who look to Jesus in faith, are being transformed into his image with ever 
increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's the question. Are your glory days behind you or are your glory days ahead of you? Are you settling for glory now or are you willing in faith to defer for an ever-increasing glory that will never, ever burn out? It's a question you need to settle this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.